Are you a man who keeps returning to porn or other unwanted sexual behaviors when what you really want is to be free? If so, we can help. Hi, my name is Jonathan, the founder of Gateway to Freedom. This three-day workshop is for men who want to overcome any kind of sexual struggle or stronghold. Whether you're married, single, or divorced, this powerful intensive weekend will help you uncover what is at the root of your struggle and discover the man God always created you to be. Our next workshop is coming up May 22nd through the 24th in Florida, just outside Orlando. Space is limited, so call us today at 1-800-49-PURITY to register. That's 1-800-497-8748 or visit BeBroken.com. Good day, listeners. Welcome to this edition of the Pure Sex Radio Podcast. We're glad that you've decided to join us. My name is Jonathan, and we actually have a special guest on the line with us all the way up from the Pacific Northwest. We have uh, Sam Louie. So, Sam, how are you doing today? Uh, a bit cold, but good. Appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. So, uh, how long have you been in, you're in the Seattle area, right? So, how long have you been up in the Pacific Northwest? Well, uh, I've Born in Hong Kong, my parents moved us to Seattle when I was fairly young, did all my schooling here, and then went off to uh, journalism after my uh, bachelor's degree and returned about 10 years ago. So there was a gap about 12 to 15 years where I was away from the Seattle area. Okay. All right. Well, uh, listeners, we are going to be getting into some of Sam's story and some of his work and just some of the particular really unique ways in which Sam has been able to minister in, uh, in, the, in the counseling realm. Uh, but first, uh, I want to let you know, as we do periodically, that we are a listener-supported broadcast. So the only way that you're seeing us or hearing us is because we've just had faithful and generous partners come alongside and uh, support this work. So if you'd like to help us continue to carry this message forward into different places around the globe, uh, please go to puresexradio.com and then just click on the donate link and you can learn about all the ways that you can uh, support us. So Sam, I would love for our listeners to just kind of get to know you, um, uh, who you are, kind of what your background has been, um, and then and then kind of how you got into this space of ministry, specifically dealing with um, sexual addiction. So share with us a little bit of your own story and and I know that we've only got a limited amount of time, uh, but share with us a little bit of your story of how you got into this kind of work and just uh, what it's meant to you personally. Sure. Uh, first off, the work as a therapist has been the past 10 years. This is my second uh, career. My first career was in journalism. Um, I was, As I mentioned, I was born in Hong Kong. Our parents moved us to a very urban area of South Seattle. Um, so what that meant was I was growing up among an African-American community, a smattering of uh, white folks and a burgeoning Asian community. Um, as I was learning how to acculturate, there was a term growing up in the 80s that uh, described us best, latchkey kids, right. um, where parents are busy working. There was very limited supervision, if any, from many of the children and uh, our peers. And, um, you know, that combined with a lot of the cultural forces just kind of led me to trying to find solace anywhere I could. So some of it was very innocuous in terms of playing a lot of sports, even if that meant playing sports in the Seattle rain by myself, you know, just because 
there wasn't a lot of emotional intimacy at home. I just wanted to escape that world. Um, the other parts meant just playing a lot of video games uh, and then eventually coming across scrambled HBO shows where you couldn't really see much as a child, but you saw enough that mm -hmm. it got your attention and, and just was like a bolt of electricity that kind of flowed through you. And so there was a, a bit mix of the, the cultural piece, the societal piece of being a latchkey kid and just my own personal um, accessibility to nudity. And then, you know, I couldn't really say it was pornographic at that time because it was kind of scrambled. You couldn't see that much, but it was enough that I was driven there. Yeah. And I think that's, that's, the, uh, that's the foundation, right? It's not necessarily the specific subject matter or even the specific behavior, but it's almost like there's a um, there's a capturing of a particular desire that we have, right? That then gets distorted into these outlets of pornography or scrambled HBO channels or, you know, whatever else. And, and, and that kind of lays that foundation, right? For then getting us in that trajectory. Mm -hmm. You know, another image that is very memorable to me, I think I was around eight or 10 years old, was a commercial and I think it was a commercial where you saw a father throwing a ball to his son and they're, they're just playing catch. It may have been a promotion for a church. I can't quite remember, but it did stick with me because I realized I wanted that. Mm. I wanted that level of closeness with my parents, my father, my mother, and didn't have it. So coinciding with the scrambled TV and finding nudity wherever it could, you know, maybe you'll find some ripped up magazines in the park or what have you. In my young, uh, my young thinking, I thought that was closeness. If I couldn't get that level of closeness that I wanted, maybe this, the sexual piece was as close as, as I could get. And maybe I could gravitate, and I did gravitate towards that. Um, and it didn't have to be nudity. Anytime I saw um, women, uh, like men and women or actresses in movies just kissing together, that was enough to really lure me in. It wasn't. It didn't have to be pornographic and, you know. So then as you progressed into, let's say, like high school and beyond, how did things happen, you know, uh, progress from there? Because uh, was there anybody that knew about these uh, behaviors that you were engaged in or even just some of the feelings that you were having of wanting you know, closeness but not really having it? Nobody knew about those feelings. And then the behaviors were very repressed at that time. Um, uh, I don't want to say I was a late bloomer per se, uh, but I, I don't remember really looking at pornography, uh, like regular, what we consider softcore pornography till maybe early college. But I was really fixated at a young age with relationships and women or fantasizing like, oh, maybe if I, if she was my girlfriend in fifth grade and there was this heavy level of dependency when I look back of being totally enmeshed within a relationship and just really desiring that level of closeness. Um, so in, in high school, I was preoccupied with sports and didn't really have a real relationship. So that some of those feelings may have just been drowned out with sports. But as soon as I had my first quote unquote real girlfriend right around my freshman year of college, things kind of exploded. Mm hmm. What did that explosion look like? How did that manifest? Um, well, there was the shame of having sexual intercourse, first off, uh, with my girlfriend, because she was part of our church. 
Um, and even though nobody may have known about it, 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 there was a lot of hiding within. And I think we dated about eight months or a year. Um, and then w once I was in college, I, I, I thought to myself, I was just damaged goods within the Christian community. So when people would say, hey, Sam, why don't you come to this worship service? You know, you might be interested. And even though they didn't know I was a Christian, in my head, I said, I can't mm -hmm. because God wouldn't want me. I, I've already done this grievous sin. How could I be in that environment? So college was really uh, me feeling unwanted and deserted by God, not by God's own doing, but my own um, misunderstanding of biblical principles and unconditional love that I went this way where I, you know, there's a lot of partying. There was a lot of uh, casual, casual encounters, hookups, and even in relationships that were very brief because I was always worried that um, maybe I was going to be found wanting in some way. So I ended up ending those relationships first and then kind of consequently moving on to the next one. Yeah. So where did, um, how did, how did everything eventually come to a head? I mean, maybe I'm moving the story forward too fast because mm -hmm. I'm sure there's a lot of things in there, but, uh, you know, that's a lot, there's a lot of chaos and brokenness. And like you said, yeah. kind of a string of broken relationships and probably a lot of, uh, confusion, right? Because here you're, you're trying to engage, um, in an intimate way, probably to meet legitimate longings that you had from the time you were a child of what does real intimacy look like in a relationship, but you're leaving kind of this wake of all of these, all of this sexual brokenness. Um, how are you processing all of this just even emotionally or spiritually during this season of your life? I would say I wasn't because yeah. I was so, um, I was young. I just didn't have a lot of uh, understanding because my family and culture, we, we just don't talk about uh, a lot of emotions or feelings. And then surrounding that, I'm a male and society has told me not to talk. I just remember, uh, this is what I thought about manhood from media images. The Marlboro Man, you know, he's this independent cowboy figure. Uh, what else? Um, you know, the sayings like, uh, there's some saying I heard as a child, like, oh, you know, it, it's good to be a man if you have um, notches underneath your belt, which meant sexual conquest mm -hmm. equated to manhood. So I had no understanding of what biblical manhood meant or masculinity or healthy masculinity. So eventually I graduated from college and then I moved away to Montana to start my first quote unquote real job in journalism. Now things are really escalating because I had all these fears of failure. What am I going to do? I'm away from home. This was before cell phones, so I didn't even have a, a connection back home, even if I wanted one. And I remember starting off going to the uh, video store when there were VCR tapes available to rent movies. And I remember specifically going to these B-related movies where ah, there's a lot of sexually themed movies and then eventually escalating to the point where it's like, you know what? I don't care. I'm going to find the uh, local X-rated bookstore and access the pornography there because this was one way that I was keeping my feelings of anxiety and fear in check. Albeit I had no idea what I was doing. I was just, this was something of, uh, of a means to cope through some of that uh, uh, personal and occupational anxiety. 
So up to this point in your life, what had, what had male relationships look like for you? You had mentioned about, you know, the, the longing even as a kid to try to have a certain connection with your dad or just what did male friendships look like? You said you played sports in high school. And I mean, did you, did you have any close male friendships along the way? Or, or was that also an area that was just kind of uh, walled off? I had close friends in the sense that I thought they were close because we played basketball together or we had, um, I was belonged to a youth group in high school where there were men and women uh, who were leading the youth group. So they were mentors of sorts, but never could I, I thought I could share uh, these feelings of uh, brokenness or yearnings and yeah, so I think that took another level of emotional intimacy that I, I, I was I, either I wasn't able to access or um, the, the community of men that I was surrounded around just wasn't wasn't safe for me to express those fears. Yeah. So then once you then just sort of cross this line into X-rated material and I mean, what happened after that? Like, like where did things go from there? What happened after Montana or just, you know, what was next? After Montana, I moved to Toledo. So now (laughs) I'm a guy who grew up all spent all my time in the Northwest and now I'm almost 3000 miles away in Ohio. And I like the feelings of lonely. If I thought Montana was difficult, now um, everything is amplified because I've quote unquote has moved up in the journalism world where I was a television reporter and um, it, it just felt like there was so much intense pressure to, to perform because I was doing what was considered live television where you're on the news. And so um, the, the stakes were higher. You're getting paid more, um, you're asked to do more, but at the same time, the, the, level of anxiety and fear uh, dramatically increased. So same thing, well, not even same thing. Now things are escalating to the point where I'm going to um, clubs to try to pick up on women, uh, sometimes successful, sometimes not, hookups here and there, um, playing endless hours of basketball. I I think I was playing basketball five days a week as another way of um, self-medicating some of these feelings, not necessarily for the pure enjoyment of it. what else? I was definitely looking at now pornography in however way I could access it. It was still, I believe at that time, maybe the beginning of, of the internet or just right around that time. So everything was coalescing at the same time. Um, I also recognized when I was in relationships, the tendency to look at pornography went down. It waned a bit, but I had no idea or con- concept any concept of addiction or compulsive behaviors up, up until this point. Yeah. And so then uh, what did relationships look like after that point? Like, did you ever get a stable relationship? Did you ever, I mean, were there seasons in which you would, uh, you said that when you were in any kind of relationship, it seemed like the pornography use went down. Um, Mm -hmm. Were you starting to try to almost make correlations to that? Like, oh, you know what, if I got in a relationship, I could probably get rid of this porn problem. Or were you just not necessarily thinking in those terms? Uh, I was oblivious that I even had the porn problem. I just knew that when I was in relationship, the pornography use went down. But the sex, I mean, the the, the relationships were highly sexualized. Everything was sexual from from the beginning. Um, But I do 
in Toledo, I also met my um, my ex-wife, well, my now ex-wife, my first wife, and um, I felt I felt like there was a connection or a yearning because she was Korean American, her family were Christian, and I, in my mind, I was like, you know what, this is what I always wanted. I wanted to um, re-enter my Christian faith. I didn't know how to do it. I obviously wanted to get married too, so um, got married in Toledo, and then in that three-year marriage, um, I believe even before we got married, the pornography use was known to a certain degree by my um, then wife because we sought premarital counseling. But at the time, there was no real understanding of the the sexual piece. So um, that part was not really considered until in the relationship. Um, in, in the matter of my three three years in marriage or three and a half years, I moved to Cincinnati. We moved to Cincinnati and then I moved to Los Angeles to work as a television news reporter. And, you know, once you're in L.A., things are really starting to, um, you know, the fears didn't go down. Let me just tell you that when it came to my work performance. Yeah. Now, was uh, was the the pornography and and sexual issues um, related to then the ending of that marriage or, or, uh, was it other things that were part of that marriage, not making it? Uh, I believe that was probably the biggest driving force. Sure. We may have had issues of, uh, cultural differences in how to communicate and meaning I was being very passive. I would never bring up any issues. She, um, had a history of some abuse on her own end. So sexual Mm -hmm. intimacy, was a bit of an issue and in my head I now started justifying um, because once I was in Los Angeles I was looking at pornography daily daily at the end of my shift thinking if I look at pornography then this would be one area of my marriage that we wouldn't have to address or have any quote-unquote issues to resolve because let me just take care of this and everything else can be great yeah so at what point then did you I mean sort of come to the end of yourself and get into some kind of recovery or, or how did things start to turn for you to where you realized the things that you teach now in terms of addiction and understanding yeah. the recovery process and all of that? Well, it ended pretty abruptly because uh, she, she sep- before we went through the divorce, there was a physical separation uh, after she discovered me um, looking at pornography so there was a physical separation and then during that separation um i asked we were going uh, both going to an asian american church i would consider it fairly progressive because the pastor would talk about counseling <laughs> on the pulpit and how he and his wife would go to counseling there should be no shame in that and he knew me enough that uh, in our story that he recommended that i get into counseling i knew there was a lot of cultural factors that inhibited me from jumping right in but because there was a you know i guess a a pastor slash asian american mentor whom i really looked up to and confided with and he showed some vulnerability on the pulpit i said you know what i'm i'm this is the reason why i'm willing to go in uh so i spent a couple years both in individual counseling and also group therapy uh concurrently during that time Uh, the marriage ended in divorce but um, I really felt like as painful as the divorce was, 
the healing and just the understanding that I'm not this despicable person um, that had to be shame bound really uh, gave me, I, I guess, gave my life back. I got mm-hmm. my life back when I was, um, it, when I realized that it, it made sense, if, if that makes sense. Up until that point, I had no idea. Why yeah. did I do these things? And I'm getting cultural messages that, you know, obviously this is perverted and blah, 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 just shameful messages. What's wrong with you? Um, and like both internally and from others. And I'm like, gosh, what is wrong with me? And something must be inherently defective that I gravitate towards this. But then through the long process of uh, recovery, you know, you peel back the layers and you recognize, recognize a lot of factors that, that played into this. Yeah. Now I probably should have had you mention this earlier because, you know, not everybody um, views this program by video. And so you've made multiple references to cultural influences and cultural Mm -hmm. aspects. Can you just let our listeners know your cultural background? Oh yeah. Um, I didn't even mention that either. I am a first generation Chinese American from Hong Kong. So what that means is my parents spoke Cantonese and some of the cultural differences is, uh, well, first there's the linguistic cultural, linguistic difference. They come to America in their late twenties, early thirties, speaking only Cantonese. They don't know English. I'm in this country trying to learn English, trying to fit in. So my English proficiency is ramping up. um, And the only Cantonese slash Chinese I'm speaking is at home with my parents. So as my understanding of the world increases, I can't even talk to them because we're not even using the same language. So that's Mm -hmm. one big thing. The other piece is the world view. My parents uh, come from a, we would say a traditional Asian or East Asian collectivist society uh, that prides itself on collectivism, group thinking, and doing everything to honor um, the family, the, 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 the ancestry, whereas America, I'm taught to think for myself, and we're more individualized in our, in our way of thinking. So these two disparate ways of thinking um, there's just this tension that you grow up experiencing for those who come from a collectivist culture. Uh, they may be able to relate to this, to this, but you know, something as innocuous as um, buying a gift. Like I might buy gifts, like I might have some allowance money, buy some friends, buy some um, candy for my friends. And then I remember my mom uh, sternly reprimanding me saying, Hey, why didn't you think about buying candy for your brothers first? Mm because shouldn't you think about your family and your culture first and foremost and, 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 and not think about yourself? Yeah. Now, unfortunately, we don't have a ton of time left. So I would love for you to dive into that a little bit more of, of just the, the shame issue, especially as it pertained to when you started kind of having all these things converge of a, uh, a, a reconnection with your Christian faith and then learning about recovery and starting to kind of go on that journey yourself of, of overcoming the addictive patterns in your life. What was it like to address the history in your life of shame as you went through your, your own recovery process? Well, I would say the group therapy was one of the hardest aspects because that meant 
presenting myself to other people. And that's not, that's something that you do not do in an Asian collectivist culture is you have to keep everything to yourself. Uh, we believe in stoicism. And um, believe it or not, researchers have found that in the, uh, at least in the Chinese culture, that there are more than 113 terms related to shame. Wow. <laughs> because everything is about honoring the family. So if you think one way, you do something, you experience something that is shameful to you individually, well, it can now shame the family, your relatives, your extended relatives, your, your um, ancestors, uh, dead and, or, you know, alive or dead. So that's kind of how per pervasive and how burdensome the shame is that going to therapy, if somebody found out, if this could shame my lineage, do I wow. want to do that? But I had to do it because uh, I, I felt like I had nowhere to go. And, you know, that was part of the process of uh, breaking. The, the, that was a huge process in terms of breaking the shackles of shame. But I think I really think it's important for our our Western listeners to hear this, because just what you said in the last 30 seconds, I don't think many of us from the West have this understanding of the compounding layers that you had to go through of additional burden. And we talk about shame in our groups, right? Like in our, in our Western American support groups, we start talking about shame. And because those who've been raised in America, for instance, I mean, like you said, we're an individualistic culture. So, hey, if yeah. I want to talk about shame, then let's talk about it. Let's get it out on the table. Let's move through. We don't have that same kind of all those multiple layers of burden like you're talking about. And I think it's important for us to hear that just to, just to have a greater sense of empathy for those in your culture who are willing to step into recovery because they realize I can't live with the burden of my addiction anymore. And, and to break through those barriers, I just want to say that's, that's commendable. But I, I also want you to speak to, is there possibility for amends to be made in your family when you make that step to go into recovery and in essence, kind of bring shame to your family? You know, making the amends, I think it, it, ha it is occurring, but depending on how traditional your family's um, thinking is and how deeply embedded it is within you, it can really impact your ability to break out of that. Uh, there's a saying, um, one of the shame-related terms, where somebody is so ashamed of what they've done that their ancestors of eight generations can still feel it. Mm. And when I speak sometimes to Mandarin speaking or mainland Chinese people, if they've ever heard of these terms, they're like, yeah, my, my parents have used this. Like, I only know it intellectually. I've never had it explicitly told to me. So then I can better appreciate their level of shame because closer to, I guess, home is the traditional culture, the more shame bound you will run into. But there is a risk. I mean, I know folks who have just gone through, let's say, just a regular divorce, and then they have to risk being ostracized or are ostracized by certain parts of the family for fear that they're going to be tainted with that. Yeah. So to, to kind of complete your story, how did you get from entering recovery to now the work that you're doing <laughs> in counseling? Yeah, uh, I gave it a lot of thought and prayer. Um, 
because I really love certain aspects of journalism. I love the storytelling. I love the writing. I love the interviewing. Um, and I remember when I was in recovery, I was working at a PBS station at the time, and it seemed to my boss that every story idea that I would propose was related to therapy or recovery or addiction, uh, men's issues, you name it. I kept giving it to her. And then she said, Sam, have you ever considered being a therapist or doing this full time? And that's when the light bulb went off in my head. Like, yeah, but I don't know if I like traditional learning. <laughs> I like to read books and learn in that way, but to go into classroom and be graded, that just seemed like something beyond me. But, you know, by the grace of God, I ended up uh, getting my master's degree in clinical psychology um, from Azusa Pacific University, which is a Christian school, which is what I wanted. How do I infuse faith into the process? Mm -hmm. um, graduated and, you know, I'm, I returned home to Seattle, opened to practice, and this has been my focus. Yeah. So uh, in our last couple of minutes that we have remaining, what would you, you want to say to um, maybe some of our listeners who share your cultural background but are really struggling silently with their secret addiction? How would you want to encourage them right now? Well, I think part of it is being able just to express it, whether it's a friend, a coworker, um, maybe it could be a, a trusted mentor. There's got to be a way to um, share it with somebody because you're carrying so much. And um, unless there's a way to alleviate that, you know, obviously because I'm a Christian, I believe being able to express it with your Christian brothers and sisters is a really um healthy avenue uh, towards shame reduction, as well as um, having folks pray for you. So I belong to a small group that keeps me, if we call it, keep it spiritually accountable, um, but also keep me connected to a community and whatever community you're in, um, because most Asian folks are, have a certain community that, that, that keeps them connected, then that might be the might be the greatest risk of sharing that, but also um, bodes the greatest return in terms of healing and um, acceptance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Now, I want us to actually kind of close out this um, episode with something that is um, your own creation. You happen to also be a poet. <laughs> Uh, so first of all, share a little bit about how you got into doing some of this spoken word as part of uh, kind of the work that you do to try to help help people. I never dreamed I would write a poem. <laughs> I just put that out there in the first place. Um, my natural tendency was one of journalism. And then slowly, slowly through the years, I wondered to myself, how else could I get a message across that might be either easier to hear or maybe come through a different medium where it could impact somebody uh, in a different way. So just like musicians would write music or artists might paint something to get to yeah. somebody emotionally, that started my own journey of writing poetry, initially for myself and my own healing. And then I realized like, wow, this is a really great uh, ministry tool. So 
I wrote a number of poems uh, in a book titled Spoken Not Broken, Healing Through Poetry. And uh, this poem is titled Redefining My Shame. I used to hate my shame, run away from it, hide from it, ignore it, deny it, pretend it wasn't there. Now, like a parent to a child, I embrace it. No more shame in naming it, sharing it, using it to my advantage, helping others heal. Where I, where I once whimpered, I now boldly proclaim it. Where I once drowned in it, I've now harnessed it. Like a mule, use it as a tool, redefined it. No longer a soul crusher. Use my shame, a light for others to escape self-blame. That's awesome. Well, Sam, first of all, thanks so much for being on the program today. We, we, we want people to know where they can um, learn more about your resources. You also do speaking as well. Um, where can people go to get some more information about you and some, uh, some resources? Sure. Um, my website, my therapy website is Sam Louie, and that's spelled L-O-U-I-E, M-F-T for marriage and family therapist.com. Um, and then my speaking website is samlouisspeaks.com. Um, I think one thing I like to highlight is because I come from a therapeutic background, a lot of the speaking that I do is very experiential, where it's more workshop oriented to, and where I use various tools and creative and expressive modes to get people um, to, to, to lessen some of that shame. Yeah. Well, thanks again so much for being with us and being able to just be willing to share your story and just the transformation that God's done in your life and how you're continuing to help others through your counseling. So we appreciate it. I appreciate it, Jonathan. Yeah. God bless you. Well, listeners, we're always glad that you're with us. And if, uh, if you've got questions for us or you also just uh, want to be able to get connected into groups and counseling and those kind of things, reach out to us. And uh, we look forward to seeing you back here again next time on the broadcast. Take care. Pure Sex Radio is paid for by Be Broken Ministries. Visit us online at puresexradio.com.